The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy at Investmark. And I'm Stephen May, Contributor at Eureka Report, Founder of Crikey, Shareholder Advocate and City of Manningham Councillor. And we are... We are the Money Cafe. Stephen, welcome back. It's always great to have you. I loved our chat two weeks ago, so very much looking forward to that. For those of you out there listening in, please buckle up. Stephen and I are probably about to completely wax lyrical about what has been the most amazing 48 hours of economic data and talk that I think I've seen in a long, long time. What's your view on that, Stephen, as we get into and dive right into Tuesday's RBA meeting statement, the presentation that he made at Morgan Stanley's International Summit, and then the GDP figures that we got as well? Well, I agree with you that I've never seen a economic data tsunami quite like it. Mm. This is obviously your your territory, not mine. But I mean, a couple of high level comments from me is I, I do now think that the fair work decision was irresponsible and too generous in locking in 8.6% increase on the minimum wage and um, uh, 5.6, I think it was for everyone, the 2.5 million workers uh, on the national awards. And just the size of the increase in interest payments is also the thing that staggers me. Like it's it's effectively going to almost double from seventy billion on mortgages in two thousand and twenty one to uh, circa one hundred and forty billion uh, in calendar twenty twenty three. So of course the economic data is going to start being anemic when you have such dramatic increases in official interest rates, twelve increases in twelve months. Um, so, look, yeah, like everyone else, I'm, I'm nervous, you know. We've got record high levels of, of household debt, surging interest rates, anemic economy. All we haven't really got at the moment, which I think would be what really hurts us, would be significant increases in unemployment and significant reductions in house prices. They're the two things that haven't happened. If we keep jacking our interest rates up this fast, that's going to happen. It's coming. I, I agree completely with that. It is coming like a freight train. So what I took out of it that absolutely blew my mind, completely agree with your call around the Fair Work Commission. It was needed. I agree with it. But as we discussed two weeks ago, it was too much in terms of being very close to that six handle. But what was so clear from the governor's concerns at the moment is that it is given an underlying anchor to renegotiations for everybody else. He was also very, very critical, and I say that deliberately. He's very measured when it comes to political input, but he was clearly worried about what is going on in public sector wage growth at 4% or more across the feds and the states because, as he points out, if public sector workers are going that level, private sector gets nervous, they could lose staff, we know we have a staffing shortage, and they'll have to return suit. So all of a sudden, if you're growing at that level, you are going to start maybe not having the wage spiral that certainly a lot of people try and say it's not happening, but the pressure is there. But then it was the unit labour cost chart and the unit labour cost conundrum is what you're alluding to, Stephen. The fact that you have now seen the biggest jump in that sort of series in almost two decades, which is, and for those of you who don't know what unit labour costs are, it is wages 
offset by productivity. And they jumped just in, at, at 10.8%. It's just staggering year over year. But what also came out in the GDP figures is that productivity is now over the last three years negative. And we yeah. just had the biggest decline in productivity since you know figures began back in 1979. Yeah, of- and we just can't we just can't afford, yeah. afford that. I mean, I mean, increasing the minimum wage from roughly forty two thousand a year to forty six thousand a year, it sounds low. But remember when Albo was holding up a one dollar coin and saying who can complain about an extra $1 an hour? Well, they've just gone for $1.85 yep. an hour. Yep. Um, so, you know. Who can complain, complain about two bucks? Who yeah. can complain about a $2 coin? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, compound I mean, interest it, it, can complain about it. And that's what I think is missed here, right? This is what is so erosive about inflation. And getting back to that unit labor cost, what was also shown, if you look at the aggregate CPI data with unit labor costs. This chart blew my mind when they put it up there. The linking is almost unbroken. The the correlation is over 95%. And that is now ballooning up. And that's their reason why they are so worried that inflation is going to get not only sticky, but could actually get anchored and get higher. It then comes back to it. It's compound interest. And as I've said on this program before and many other things, it's really simple to go right down to the granular level. If your dollar, as Albo was holding up today, is that dollar, at current rate of inflation, which is 6.8%, in five years' time, that dollar is $1.40 compared to $1.11 at 2% or $1.18 at 3% over the same period of time. That is the problem. Yeah. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't agree more that uh, the productivity falling is just is oh, just unsustainable. I mean, we've got the world's highest minimum wage, and I, you know, I think that's great that we've got that. But it's it's if you bake it in across the board, mm. and this is I mean I'm going to sound like an old you know Kennet government uh, spin doctor here, but wall to wall Labor governments of, at federal and state, excluding Tasmania, it is an interesting challenge. Where us politicians, we always want to please everyone, and you know, but at the end of the day, you do have to balance the books. So I just I think there is a bit of a reckoning coming. I also want to pick up on the Sally McManus line from the ACTU, the sort of blaming at all inflation on, you know, corporates gouging record profits, you know, that that sort of thing. That was proven wrong this week. Well, I mean, it's that there, there is an element of that in Australia. We are a nation of oligopolies. I mean, mm-hmm. I look at it, you know, should Coles and Woolworths really have a combined market capitalization today of $70 billion? You know, they do have enormous market uh, pricing power, even though Aldi has been a godsend for value-conscious consumers uh, in Australia. We've got three Aldis in the city of Manningham now, and, you know, thank God for that. They're busier than ever. And, like, should the Commonwealth Bank really be worth $161 billion? You know, they've gone up from $57 to $96 from the bottom of COVID, and they've got the most number of home loans. So I do agree that our biggest corporates could be more generous with consumers, could be not passing as much on in terms of price rises. Um, but equally, you know, there's other factors, like you don't hear any complaining farmers anymore. I mean, Australia's always got complaints about drought and farmers, and farmers have never had it so good with record high commodity prices. And equally, you know, they're paying record amounts of tax because uh, the federal government has got record amounts of corporate tax and income tax at the moment because we've got the best terms of trade ever. So we still are the lucky country, but I just think that it, it is a little bit unsustainable. And the last 48 hours has been scary. And the scariest thing for me is just surging interest rates and surging inflation. Uh, yep. It's just it's just scary and, and that's, something's got to be done to stop that inflation. So I actually support 
the aggressiveness by the central bank um, uh, and worry about you know baking in unsustainable uh, wage rises. Yeah, so my counterpoint to all of that is we saw on Monday that the read from the ABS around company profits gross and then pre-tax profits was, for the first quarter, fascinating. So company profits pre-tax fell 7.5% in the first quarter um, and gross company profits for the first quarter was 0.5. Expectation was it for actually be along the line to about three and for pre-company profits pre-tax, it was supposed to be just on five and a half percent and it contracted 7.5 percent so it is biting it's not just the household it is biting and that's what we saw in the gdp figures as well per capita we had our first strike we contracted 0.2 of one percent in the first quarter there is every sign and again this is not me saying this the feds and the rba are forecasting a recession per capita that the second quarter will confirm that and we just scraped through on the headline figure at point two. I mean, if it wasn't for some slightly better than expected net exports, we probably would have actually not seen any growth at all yes. in the first quarter at all. So, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, thank God for the exports, from oh, yeah. to coal to, to wheat. You know, we're, we're just booming on the exports. And, um, I mean, I was worried that, that housing construction was so weak as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a real crisis in the building sector, b- builders going broke, costs soaring, um, enterprise agreements, CFMEU, you know, you name it, it is incredibly tough. You know, lack of release of land, planning rules, the whole box and dice. And and we're seeing that with, you know, plummeting housing starts. And with, with, with migration soaring, we can't afford to have plummeting housing starts. And that's that's exacerbating soaring rents and artificially holding up house prices because the supply is not there. But equally, on the flip side, with that whole oligopoly record profits things, what about Alan Joyce, you know, selling 17 million bucks worth of Qantas shares at $6.74, giving uh, <laughs> Qantas has got a market cap of almost $12 billion. So that is one sector, you know, Virgin and Qantas, where you have, in my view, seen gouging, lack of supply, lack of competition, mm-hmm. oligopoly, you know, record profits, um, and you've got the, you know, a legendary CEO cashing out right at the top uh, earlier this week, uh, selling uh, 70 million bucks worth of shares at uh, $6.74 a pop. So there's arguments both sides. You know, there's sectors where I think the corporates could be less aggressive with their pricing, including Aquinas and Virgin, the banks, Woolies and Coles. But overall, I agree with your your thesis about um, um, you know, a, a storm coming at us and, uh, and the, the baked-in wage increases across the board being something we should be nervous about. Now, I do want to put something here because we've just been serious doom and gloom. I, I do need to point this out. I am not pessimistic about the medium-term future. This will abate. It will come back. I agree with you that interest rates have to happen as painful as they are and happy to take you know a lot of heat off that. The, the, this week, having done serious radio interviews over and over, the visceral pain and the visceral sort of anger coming back at the RBA is understandable, but they have to do it. I mean, there is no doubt at the moment that you're not getting help from Fed or state level. And I'm not taking political sides here. I want to also point this out. I don't come from a political background for good reason. But at the moment, there is a fiscal policy that, as the RBA is clear to point out, it's neutral, but it's only neutral because of natural levers. So the fact that we've got bracket creep and you've actually seen one of the most amazing tax take-homes 
that you'll ever see. It's now 47.5% of the Fed's take-home is income tax. That is what they mean by tightening. But if in terms of what the policies have been put in, they're probably accommodative. So net-net, they're neutral, but through no actual intervention itself from the federal government. Particularly. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. And, and th- that income tax thing, I mean, think about your- Mental, your, isn't it? Uh, but think about your, your typical middle-class family with a with a half-million-dollar mortgage. I mean, there's, what, 10.3 million, uh, million residences in Australia and 6 million of them have got mortgages. The average mortgage is 500K. That's, you know, 3 trillion of, uh, of mortgage debt. Interest repayments, you know, now running at you know, 140, $115 billion a year are not tax deductible. You're okay. paying that in your after-tax dollars. Yep. And if you've also, you know, decided to send your school, send your kids to a Catholic school or whatever and you've got 20 or 30 grand in school fees a year or you know, 60, More. 70, 80 grand, that's after-tax dollars as well. Yep. And then you, so you're paying, you know, we've got very, very high income tax rates in Australia and some of these key expenses that are surging are not actually tax deductible. And then it's only those people who can get into the, the the wrinkles of super and negative gearing who can actually manage their tax down as they're battling all these uh, all these non-tax deductible soaring costs. Now, I'd love to go on that for longer and we will. I know looking at some of the questions, they are going to come up. So I want to keep moving because I think there's so much to cover this week. So to you first and foremost, because I know that Crikey has been all over this and I think it's very worth our time for you to go through What's happened with Seven West Media, Kerry Stokes, and the Ben Robert Smith case? Well, I'll just sort of make a couple of, couple of quick comments. Yeah, no, you need to do it. Go for it. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, key lesson is is do not take on Nick McKenzie if you're uh, you're anyone in Australia, if you're Adam Somurak or if you're, you're James Packer and Crown or Ben Robert Smith, just do not take on uh, Nick McKenzie. Now that he's got these uh, 60 Minutes and the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, uh, he, he is the number one takedown investigative journalist uh, in the country. I don't think Stokes will fund a, an appeal by Ben Roberts Smith and I, I personally think that uh, the, the serious issues about whether Kerry Stokes should remain as the chairman of Seven West Media. Um, you know, what's he doing funding uh, a massive litigation defamation attack on, a, on, on fellow journalistic operation? I mean, I just find that amazing. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And I'm looking forward to the Seven West AGM because at last year's Seven West AGM, I sent a proxy along to ask a few questions about what Stokes was doing and he came up to my proxy afterwards and, and said, Ben Robert Smith is innocent and deserves to be represented against attacks from scumbag journalists. So, <laughs> you know, Kerry Stokes, probably developer, mining magnate, um, I don't think is suitable to be a licensed television station uh, owner uh, personally, but uh, we'll see what happens. He's, he's 82, I think, now and he's worth $7.5 billion, so he doesn't need it. And I think he should. Uh, I think he should retire. And the next thing that I will get involved with is news this week that the ASX Limited and the ASX as a whole is under some serious pressure. The ASX as a whole, for the first time in eighteen years, will shrink, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But also, just how much of a problem chess and blockchain has come for the ASX. I'm going to ask that part first to you, Stephen. How have you seen what has gone on at the ASX over the last five years and why they are going through leadership after leadership people? Well, obviously, the chess replacement program is a total mess. I mean, as we speak today, uh, there's, a, there's a hearing in, in Parliament where I think uh, the, the lead contractor on the design of the chess replacement program, uh, uh, Digital Assets, I think it's called, a US firm is giving evidence. Their submissions are, are in contrary to the ASX's own submissions and they're in dispute with Accenture who did the review. So, look, it's just been a train wreck. 
and now it's becoming a blame fest. Um, and so it's not a good look uh, for our monopoly ASX to be going through this at a time when we've had record low numbers of listings, a record high numbers of takeovers from, you know, from Osnet to Sydney Airport to, to, to Origin Os- Energy. Os Minerals, New Crest coming growing, up. So I think it's a bit of a crisis for... Um, for the ASX in terms of the the hegemony of uh, public listing being the number one way to raise and manage capital and companies in Australia because private equity and super funds and pension global sovereign funds are just proving a lot more attractive and many direct investors, you know, Australia's famously got 7 million direct small investors are increasingly going for the ETF exposure uh, rather than the direct uh, uh, listed company uh, share exposure. So, it's an interesting time for ASX, and, and once again, it's a long, long-term long government-enshrined monopoly, which has been overcharging and making super returns and getting lazy for the lack of competition. Bigger. That word is lazy, right? That is what – and I. this is where I want to jump in with you on this. Laziness, and the other one is arrogance. I yep. mean, I remember when Chi-X came, the AX, ASX's response was just epitome of arrogance, absolute arrogance in terms of what they did. They – as you said, they went straight to the government and tried to ban Chi-X getting access to certain stocks, certain markets, and how they were going to do their clearing. They were forcing them to come through chess systems because, you know, the Australian uh, investor couldn't stand having two different clearing systems. It's why we got rid of SRNs and blah, blah, blah. What rubbish because, again, now we're in this state. Getting back to you also, the interesting point around the IPO listings, it also shows that government regulation can have a negative effect when it's trying to have a positive one. I mean, as companies keep telling you, the amount of cost and the amount of regulation actually now makes IPOing probably not that attractive. And you've pointed out, super funds now have significant pools of their overall investment sort of group to private equity. I mean, the good example here is one of our best companies that I would love to have had my hands on is Canva, but they don't need to list because all of their seed money, all of their current funding money comes from the super funds. Now, thankfully, the super fund that I have is very much part of it. But at the same time, it shows that if a company like Canva, which back in the day would have had to have gone down an IPO to get to the size that it is, doesn't have to do that anymore, that is a real concern. And as shareholders, you and I, and as, you know, advocates for shareholding, that really concerns me that you are going to miss the growth that happened to the generations before because companies now think it's too hard to IPO, too much regulation, too much oversight cost when they can go to the super funds and other VPs and go, this is what we're doing, this is our outlook, and they will go, done, here's a check, thanks very much. I have to say I I do sort of occasionally self-reflect on this is that a few of these private outfits also say, and we don't have nutters like Stephen Main annoying us at our annual meeting. So I think – those of us yeah, who annoy yeah. and and uh, pick on public companies, and you know, certainly the climate movement, uh, you know, goes multiple hours at every uh, public company anywhere near the fossil fuel space. We we all just need to be conscious of, you know, not overdoing it in terms of scrutiny, pressure, attacks, public campaigns on public companies because those private companies. You know, they just sit there and laugh and say, oh, look at that, we're private, private equity, we haven't got all this scrutiny, we can just get on with running the business. Yep. Um, Virgin, so, you know, example. Oh, oh, Virgin, oh. Virgin is exactly that example, right? Yes, yeah. they're coming back, but there is a reason Virgin went away because they the scrutiny on their original shareholding, the fact that three major international airlines, which were state-controlled, 
had so much. Oh, that, that, that's a perfect example. It's again, yeah, well, but I, th- I think co- I mean COVID killed uh, COVID killed Virgin. I, I, yeah, that too. But before that, I mean, you, you could hear that over and over. They wanted to go private anyway, and yeah, it was just. Yeah. But what's interesting is that private equity now have have longer dated mandates because I mean yep. the two biggest sources of well the three biggest sources of, uh, of new listings is sort of you know the family company made good, uh, the big privatizations and demutualizations from you know Telstra, Combank. Um, uh, AMP, you know, Colonial, uh, mm-hmm. NRMA, et cetera, et cetera. That's all dried up. We've seen barely a privatisation or a demutualisation in the last uh, few years. And private equity are not floating as much, partly because r- returns from the likes of, of, of uh, Pepper Money and Latitude and Maya have been so terrible that private public company investors are, are sort of reluctant to buy off uh, off uh, private equity. That's their and- own fault. Let's put that out there. That, that if you are going to turn companies into something else that that is that is you know part and parcel that private equity have to wear the wear on the chin anyway we could go on this for a long long time and and i do think we need to move along we've been going quite a while and we've got a lot of questions so let's dive in first question comes from lloyd good to see alan and james at their last discussion migration which gives pause to the rba governance claims that it's all about supply I always hear the argument that we need immigration to deal with our aging population, but won't immigration also get old eventually, requiring even more immigration and so on and so forth? Isn't that the definition of a Ponzi scheme? That's well, I mean, I, Charles Ponzi was a, an Italian crook who uh, he eventually died in Brazil. His scheme in the 1920s uh, fleeced investors of about uh, $20 million back then. I don't think we should not a Ponzi scheme. No, exactly. We shouldn't be comparing migration. It's, it's not even close to that. It's no, not, it's not even close to it. But look, look, there is a there is an underpinning is that migration into Australia has underpinned uh, property values. It's it's helped with uh, with sourcing sourcing labour, and Australia as the least populated country in the world in terms of number of people per square kilometre of arable land. We've got this card to play more aggressively than any other country in the world. And the, and the one little stat I'll give you to demonstrate this is that the island of Haiti is 27,750 square kilometres and they've got 11.45 million people packed into that. Compare that to the island of Tasmania, which is two and a half times bigger with 68,000 square metres, square kilometres, and it's only got 551,000 people there. So the, the density of population is is 53 times more dense. So we have gone nowhere near uh, capacity in terms of our ability to, to take in migrants. We just need to stop having the concentration in the big cities and getting everyone angry about congestion. And if we can spread out the population load like most other countries do without having 75% in the capital cities on the coast, it will be a lot more manageable. But uh, I, you know, I just- Tough question to that, and this is where I'm going to jump in on you on that because I'm a little bit different. The issue that we have in the Australian psyche and in the Australian culture is that we like to live where we work and more and more work is getting more and more concentrated in those cities that you're alluding to. And it's right, COVID showed that we can do it. We can actually go to the regions. We can work from the regions and the regions are a very viable source of places to live with a very good standard of living. Yeah, but people should be retiring. I mean, you know, the nursing homes and the retirement villages should be, you know, in country towns all over Australia. But again, so affordable, there's right? a culture and, difference there, right? And I agree with that. I completely agree with it. The economics of it, the policy of it is absolutely bang on with what you just said. 
But again, the behavioral economist in me knows that that is not how society works and it's not how our culture works. We still continue to want to live and work and be near the populations that we've always been with our entire lives. And that's part and parcel of the problem. The second part, and this is the other thing, the argument that also comes with that is that it's all well and good to do that. We do not have, like overseas, the infrastructure to deal with that. We do not have trained systems like Europe or like the US that can get you know people to and from the major city hubs and back in the space of an hour. Uh, we've got a couple of them in, in Sydney and a couple of them in, in Melbourne, but overall we do not have that ability. Our, you know, our systems to get and transport people are not good enough at this point in the cycle and yeah, it's I'm, very, the, very expensive to do it too. The planning rules are pretty strange. I mean, I'm a councillor in the city of Manningham and in, in, you know, we're 12 kilometres from the CBD. Yeah, we've got 1,400 private tennis courts and 5,500 lots that are over an acre. Mm-hmm. And you can't you can't uh, subdivide it under our planning rules, and if you go forty two kilometres further out from Wonga Park, which is our most outer suburban suburb, you get to the last subdivision in Pakenham, where we're forcing people to be to be squeezed into a one tenth of an acre, four hundred square metre block. So, you know, I think that we've got so much land in Australia. I just find these arguments about too much immigration relative to the rest of the world. I just find it. Uh, uh, quite hard to, to to stomach, even as I sit in traffic like everybody else and get frustrated with queues and delays and all this sort of stuff. And I agree with you about the lack of trains. Uh, that tra- Australia is a debacle on on trains. It really is. But um, just anyway. just on infrastructure alone, like we are unfortunately behind in terms of where we should be. I, we're going to have to keep moving on. Lloyd, thank you for your question. Luke says, I think the PwC fallout is very interesting as it highlights how interwoven these big companies are with governments. How will any government affect real change and simplification without such relationships? Not to mention the lobby groups associated with them. Well, Luke, the I mean, PwC is no different from big developers or miners or gambling companies or licensed media companies or just political donors in general. I must admit, I'm a bit over this pile-on on PwC. I mean, of course it was outrageous that Collins leaked his, his his tax advice to the ATO to do a fast pitch to global corporates on how to dodge it. Of course that was a disgrace. But um, to suggest that, you know, there's something wrong with big four accounting firms having consultants who, who help corporates and governments, I mean, yes, we should improve the capacity of the public service, yeah, even at City of Manningham, we regularly hire, you know, consultants for left, right and centre. So, yeah, sure, let's rebuild the public service. But, you know, at the end of the day, we need to be able to buy in skills and uh, the big four have got some very skilled people. So I'm a bit over the pile on as much as they were disgraced, but uh, certainly don't want to see them fail because we don't want an oligopoly of a big three. Uh, we need as much competition as possible in the accounting and consulting space and PwC should be disgraced, pay a big fine, and then let's all move on. I agree. We're going to keep going there. I'm not going to put my, my two cents on that. I want to get to Luke's question because I think it's actually an interesting one just from, from a technical point of view. He's, Luke says, I'm in the US and I'm wondering why it's non-farm payrolls. Why aren't farming payrolls included in the statistics? I'd assume that farming is 5 to 10% of US GDP. Now, I'm going to take that one because unfortunately I'm about to give you a bit of a little history lesson in terms of, of what it is. I've had this question come at me many, many times and I've almost got this recited sort of word for word off the textbooks that use this. This has come through history. And why I say that is that it goes back to the mid-19th century in the US. Governments were first starting to finally notice that 
Americans were changing their work habits. And the reason for that is that back in the day, you know, agriculture accounted for almost 50% of all American workers. And that was because it was also done by the family. Now it's 0.5%. Yeah, 165,000 out of no, oh, no, 165 million total workers. Yeah, only 630,000 of them are in on the farms and ranches. Bingo. So that was where it came about. It came from that system about needing to see what was happening, particularly in the 1850s when you know America's industrial revolution absolutely exploded. So after the Civil War, all that kind of stuff, it exploded. That's when you got those big manufacturing hubs in things like cotton, which then moved into steel, which then moved into car manufacturing, so on and so forth. It was the best way to actually gauge that. It's not just non-farms, might I also point out. It does take things like if you work for the um, the CIA, if you work for the NSA, if you work for certain other parts of government departments, they don't want the world to know how many of those people work for those kind of departments for obvious reasons, uh, for national security. So that that's why. It's, that's, that's, that's the way it is. And it, it's more of a historical thing. And as Stephen just pointed out, it's now a very, very small part of the employment mix. I'll leave that one there because I want to keep going. Yeah, and the, the, I mean, it, it does measure... 80% of the workforce. So yes. you're right. There's, there's yep. exclusions like, you know, like military and not-for-profits, but at the end of the day, it's covering 80%. So it's a fair representation and we shouldn't, you know, worry about the fact that it's somehow not representative of labour. Exactly. Market. And the other advantage that it has, which I think is actually very, very good compared to what we do here in Australia, is that it measures when social security numbers go in and out of the system. So they actually have a much better understanding of who is and who isn't employed. Um, yeah. Whereas we do a 60,000-person survey, they extrapolate that to a population of working, employing market of around about 16 million people. It's an interesting one for a debate another day. Now, now, Ben's got another good one for you, Evan. Why don't we just let the market of lenders and borrowers set the interest rates? Sure, the government is in there as a borrower and sometimes a lender, but overall the rest is just a normal market. There is no one setting the price of houses or Vegemite or that sort of stuff. So why have a central authority setting interest rates? So that is something for me and that is where, you know, you do need something standing behind the monetary system. You do actually need a set of understanding underlying interest rates because it is that. I mean, again, the borrow... What are you borrowing against? If you go and actually go to the bank, the bank has to borrow that money to give to you as well. The bank needs assurance for that. So that is where you do have a government-backed security to go, okay, the bank needs to borrow not the money just for your home loan, but for, as Stephen's been pointing out, the over several trillion dollars of home loans that are in this country. That needs to be very, very assured because if the banks weren't assured of doing that, then the whole system would start to collapse. So that, again, is why somebody like the RBA, who is backed by the GDP input of this country along with the overall tax take, it also has you know overseas money to back it up as well. That's why it has foreign reserves. It then also uses things like gold. And I know that's a really strange thing to say, but gold is still a backstop inside of that. When you take that mix together, it gives an absolute bedrock setting so that the monetary system is anchored, as we refer to it. It is anchored in some form of certainty so that when the private bank goes and borrows off those markets and then lends to you, there is a guarantee that the money that the bank's borrowed isn't going to default on you. Because if you, by no fault of your own, if all of a sudden that money that I just alluded to was not anchored and we had a government crisis, then through no fault of your own, the money that you've borrowed is actually under pressure because the institution you've gone through is under pressure at the same time. So that, that's the way to look through that. And that, the bottom line, Ben, also is that at the end of the day, I mean, 35 years ago, every state government 
had a state bank. Mm. Um, and you've got, you know, banks are basically, they're, they're all licensed by the government effectively. So banking is is very government influenced. Used to have a lot of government ownership of banks, now has a lot of government control through licensing and the rules. And, and so they have to re- regulate the playing field. And one of those things is setting a benchmark rate through which different countries can deal with each other, different currencies can be priced. So I, I, I absolutely completely agree. We, we can't abolish, particularly with, you know, floating exchange rates now. I mean, we can't abolish the government setting the, the, the benchmark price, even if we all hated it at the moment after 12 increases in 12 months. Yeah. Going to keep moving. I want to jump onto one that I think we needed to cover. You and I have talked about this before, but I want to go into it a bit more, which is Peter. I love the show, but I have to call out Alan and his apparent misunderstanding of how percentage tax works. Percentages are progressive by definition. That is, they earn you more the more tax you pay, period. Percentages build fairness and make someone on a 200K packet pay eight times the tax of someone on 50K. The statutory tax cuts need to come into place. You always make out that people on higher wages are somehow stealing from the poor when, in fact, they are the backbone of revenues. I know you and I are on the same page. Well, we're lucky right. Alan's not here. Not here yeah, that's right. We need, we need to talk about this because I, I – I, I think this is a very interesting point in terms of, of where it is. And why I say that is that, like we've already said in this show, 47.5% of personal income tax now backs up the federal government. That is too high. The mix needs to change. And you also need to have the ability for your population to be able to make decisions without having to constantly be thinking that their taxation is eating into their ability to do what they want. Yeah, Look, I mean, I agree. I mean, someone who's on a million dollars a year, I mean, they're paying 400000 in tax. I mean, that alone will pay for the wages of five customs officers. So, you know, if we didn't have personal income tax, we, we would have nothing. I mean, it's 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 so huge. So, you know, in Hong Kong, it's only 15% flat mm-hmm. rate. And, so, and um, I think what's also lost in this debate is the, the looking at between the one eighty and the 200000 salary. The one that I think you need to look at the most, which is becoming much, much more apparent, is those between 120 and 150, which statistics will tell you isn't that much, but it actually is a huge, huge underlying cohort of the middle income Australia part. And their savings on this is about three and a half, four thousand dollars $4,000. And that is, that is where it is because why I highlight them, they are most likely to be nurses, sort of also in, in the fiery and police community. They are most likely to also be in the teacher community on the upper end. They're the ones that everybody compares that they're not doing that well. And that is, you know, true and also not true. They are the ones that deserve to have a, a movement in that because the 37 tax bracket is, in my view, the problem. I understand the argument about, you know, flatlining it between 45,000 and 230% has a problem. But the current scenarios and the bracket creep ways that they're working is inefficient and it is creating a drag on the overall economy. Now, I understand right now what we've talked about at the start of this, Stephen, that might actually help considering it would bling down inflation because you've got to pay more tax. But but the longer-term benefits of actually moving those around is much better. I, I think the better argument that Peter sort of alluded to around progressive tax definition, if you wanted to do it in a better way, they should be indexed to inflation and they should move every year. Yeah. So you, that, that's the better way to do it is instead of saying it's a flat fee, you know, up to 45000 then once you get to 120000 you go through it. Realistically, that 120000 should be indexed and moved every year so that it keeps you out of bracket creep and keeps you up with inflation. Now, we had a question from Steve asking whether he should get out of Catholic super. 
Uh, and I did have oh. a look at the returns, and I, I will just briefly comment that, look, Catholic Super uh, has underperformed over the year. Their 10-year return on their balanced uh, fund has only been uh, 5.68%, whereas 10 years at Aussie Super has been 9.32% on the balanced. So I don't think we need to say much more. I mean, you know, just look up the different Super returns, and look, the record shows that Catholic Super hasn't performed that well in the past, but... Bottom line is that often the past doesn't tell you much about the future. So um, uh, you probably should have got out 10 years ago and they may, they may be the number one performer going forward. But, look, let's finish off with Pete, who wants to ask about the perspective as to what's going on with the underperformance of Australia's two biggest listed investment companies, AFIC and Argo. AFIC's share price is the lowest it's been for two and a half years with its share price to NTA declining from a strong positive to its current negative position. Argo's share price is also at its lowest for over two years with an NTA just above neutral. What's going on? Now, you're right, Peter. I had a look at both of these, and you're right. The, the premium to NTA has narrowed to virtually nothing when it was at 10 to 15% a couple of years ago. So what I think's actually happened here is this is partly, I think, the drawdown on savings, that Australians in, in this current environment, Australians are drawing down on their savings, and when they were getting cash thrown at them during covid a lot of people bought into AFIC and Argo as the two best-known licks because they had spare cash. And so this sort of artificially propped up their prices. Now they're drawing down. And it also probably plays in with the general theme around people moving away from the share market. They're, they're more buying ETFs and putting money into their super. And I also think because there's so many licks that are trading at a discount to NTA that quite a few people have sort of looked at it and said, well, why would I hold something which is trading at a premium? Because it is quite irrational to value Argo, uh, you know, AFIC shares at, at $8 when the NTA is $7. I mean, how does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And uh, and instead buy into LICs that might be trading at a discount to, to net assets like a lot of the real estate trusts at the moment and some of the smaller LICs. So I just think it, it was over-exuberant for those two and now it's just come back to reality because at the end of the day, licks should trade near their NTA, so now it's just it's just normal as opposed to a premium just because they're supposedly old, big and safe. I agree with that. I would love to go further, but we can't because that has been an absolutely ginormous show, Stephen. So as always, thank you for those who listened to today's episode of The Money Cafe. James Thompson and I will actually be joining you next week. Alan will be back the week after. And then if that's the case and you do want to tune in, please, please send through your questions. I know we didn't get to all of them today, but we do love seeing them. And email us in at themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. And as a reminder, to keep those questions short and sharp because as we can see, if we have to read out a big long time, we run out of time. So please send them in. We do love to see them. Until then, I'm Evan Lucas, Head of Strategy at Investmart. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and city of Manning Councillor, and I'll see you all in a fortnight. Thank you, guys. Over and out.